thanks to ZipRecruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode. You know what's not smart? Learning to fly a drone with a blindfold on. You know what is smart? Hiring with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. My listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. You may know me as someone who believes in the power of give and take. I give the orders and everyone else should take them. But in my spare time, I talk tech. And you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is someone I've wanted to have here a long time, Dr. Adam Grant, an organizational psychologist and best-selling author. He co-wrote Option B with Sheryl Sandberg in 2017 and wrote other books before that, including Give and Take, Why Helping Others Drives Our Success, and also The Originals, which was a big, had a big impact in Silicon Valley for sure. He's also the co-founder of an organization called Give and Take, which helps businesses and other teams work better together. Adam, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, it's great. We passed each other at tech events, correct? We, we Without never, ever interacting. Without ever interacting. Which I think which, was the choice of yours. No, not at all. Not at all. I'm probably <laughs> just on my way somewhere else. No no meaning to ruin, but I'm, I've always been really intrigued by your books. And I want to talk, I, what I like to do with people is I like to get a little background of how they got to where they got. And you're a, you're a professor and, and you do all kinds of consulting with companies, but how did you get into this zone, in, into organizing people's psychology, for example? <laughs> well, uh, I co-founded what I think was the first online social network at Harvard. Okay. In when 1999. Facebook, so no. No, <laughs> no, no. a few years earlier. Yeah. We, um, there were a bunch of us who had decided to go, but we were afraid we wouldn't know anyone. Mm-hmm. And so we started searching AOL profiles to find classmates. Okay. And we found a few every week, and we right. built a little email list. Okay. And we got to school in the fall. So it's a listserv. Yeah, it was basically, yeah, really yeah. early stage. Yeah. When we arrived on campus in the fall, we'd connected about an eighth of the entering class. And oh, we wow. said, we know each other face-to-face. We don't need this email list anymore. And we shut it right. down. Oh, wow. So you had the idea for Facebook. Not, not even if close. If you had built Facebook, <laughs> you would have built close. Facebook, as they say. So what prompted you to do that? Was the idea that you just didn't know anybody or this yeah, was we, a, a new tool? Or It seemed like, I don't know, I was I was emailing more and more with my high school friends right. and starting to, to see that, you know, there were exciting ways to connect digitally that I'd never right. really thought about before. Uh-huh. And so it just, it was the first thing I thought to do when I realized I was going to move, you know, from the Midwest to Boston. Right, right, right. And so you wanted to make friends. Basically, yeah. And I guess a bunch of other people did too. And, you know, very quickly it devolved into, you know, a bunch of factions. People hated each other. Cliques were were formed. But I also am really close to a bunch of people I met through that email list still today. And then you would talk to each other on the email list or just would email back and forth in these mass emails? We we had conversations. We had mass emails. We had meetups in different cities. It was a a whole little community. Wow, that's amazing. It's called the E-Group. Oh, wow. That's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and another digital company that we never that heard never of. happened. That never happened. So, w- so you just got interested in that? How people organize? So, I think what happened was I I counted myself out as somebody who was too risk averse to be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and so instead I went and worked for uh, for a company, and I I started out just doing ad sales, and then. I was promoted to manager, and I was I was still in college at the time, but I had a million-dollar budget and a whole staff to motivate. Mm-hmm. And I spent my whole job basically trying to figure out how I could do the people part of it better. Right. And, you know, I, I didn't care that much about <laughs> the, the budget. Right, right. But what I was interested in was, was the question of hiring and motivating and yeah. designing better jobs and shaping culture. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to make that my job, and here right. we are. Right, here we are. So you just decided this is what you want to do instead of the actual business. I Yeah, I was hooked on the fact that I think— 
so many of us spend most of our waking hours at work, yep. and yet very few of us find our jobs really meaningful and motivating. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to make work suck a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And there had been a lot of history of people trying to do this, to organize people and what's the best way to manage. And there, there's innumerable books, like Who Moved My Cheese, this, all this other stuff <laughs> of how you motivate yourself and how you motivate your workers and things like that. Had, did you, had you paid attention to any of that? Not a ton. I, I guess I was drawn to it you know, really from the perspective of social science. So when I was working first trying to, you know, negotiate and persuade and then later manage, I was taking all these psychology classes. Mm-hmm. And what I found myself relying on was was evidence. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by the fact that, you know, there wasn't much of a bridge between the ivory tower and Main Street. Right. That there are all these great studies collecting dust in journals that could actually be applied to make management less horrible. Right, right. And so I, I wanted to try to, I guess, build that bridge as much as I could. So let's talk about why management's so horrible. What did you find? Because again, there's been lots of... I can't even tell you how many books I've read on this subject, most of which are useless, but anyway. <laughs> are there any exceptions? No. Well, I think fiction or, you know, I, in, I find more interest in fictional stuff, like how people organize themselves or, or families or things. It depends. And we're going to talk about that because I think one of the tenets you had about how companies like families are more successful um, without the dysfunctional people in, the, in, those, in <laughs> yeah. those families. Um but what? So, how did you come across with your theory? Because you have to have your theories so that you can apply them to, to, to what you're doing. Yeah. So, I think one of the the first things I was struck by is just how disconnected most managers are from the actual work that people do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think this was long before Undercover Boss. Mm-hmm. But most of the organizations that I started studying had managers who sat in a corner office, had no contact with their employees, very mm-hmm. little interaction with end users or customers. Mm-hmm. And it made it really hard for them to imagine, you know, what, what the job was actually like mm-hmm. or what customers actually needed. Right. And so I started out doing studies just trying to connect those dots. And I ran mm-hmm. a little experiment with fundraising callers. Mm-hmm. And I brought in a scholarship student. This was at a university. So the mm-hmm. callers were raising money uh, to try to, you know, sort of provide funds mm-hmm. for all different outcomes. But I brought in a scholarship student, and it was a little experiment where he said, look, you know, I I wanted to come to school here. I couldn't afford it. Because of the work that you all do, you know, it's possible. And, you know, I I tried to convince the managers that that was an important way to motivate. And they said, Mm -hmm. "Eh, you know, people already know where the money goes. And I said, look, it's one thing to know. It's Mm -hmm. another thing to actually see a living, breathing student whose Mm -hmm. life you changed. Right. And I was stunned to discover that that one student coming in to talk about the impact of the job mm-hmm. led to a 142% increase in the average caller's weekly phone minutes mm-hmm. and a 171% increase in weekly revenue per caller. Mm-hmm. And wow. it was just, it, it really made the job more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking, you know, we don't just need to do this with employees, right? We need to do this with managers too. Mm-hmm. To give them an idea of, of what motivates people. Yeah, and help really help them see who's affected by the work they do, which is right. so many of us are in the dark about. Right, or why I'm doing this at all kind of Yeah, thing. although I, get, I gather you hear from your readers and listeners a fair amount. I do, and that, sometimes <laughs> that's not motivating in any way. It's like, I think I'll quit, like kind of thing, because they're just— It's that bad. No, it's just, uh, no, some of them love it. Yeah, they. I lo- thank you for doing what you do. But now with social media, it's changed really drastically because all the noisy people really get a lot of noise, get a lot noisier. I think you must get extra fire because as I far as I can it. tell, yeah, you're. I would call you a disagreeable giver. Yes, exactly. Okay, <laughs> I want to hear about this. I, we'll get to that in a minute. I, I think I was disagreeable. Um, but, um, uh, but so you said to, meaning was one of the things, but you said to work on figuring out what those things are, which they don't fit in all workplaces, correct? Or or can, or can there be 20 different kinds of workplaces? I, You know, I think there's a pretty big organizational uniqueness bias. Mm-hmm. And this drives me crazy in Silicon Valley. Right, okay. Almost every company I've gone into, mm-hmm. what I hear is our culture is unique. Right. 
And then I ask, how is it unique? Mm-hmm. And the answers are all the same. Yeah. <laughs> so you're so like, what do they say? Tell me what they say. So I, I hear, I've listened to this too. So. I mean, yeah, I don't think I've heard anything that you haven't. But right. I hear, oh, you know, people people really believe in our values. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they think that we're, we're a cause. Right. right. So they're so passionate about the mission. Mm-hmm. Great. So is pretty much every other company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear, you know, we give employees unusual flexibility. Right. Uh, we have, you know, we have all sorts of, you know, benefits that no other company Perks offers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we live with integrity mm-hmm. in ways that no other company does. And right. it's just the same platitudes over and over. Right. Right. Which are often not applied, actually, except for the free stuff. Yeah, which which is I think kind of a constant these days. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's baseline. It's funny if you go back. There was a a great study that Joanne Martin led in the early '80s, where mm-hmm. she said, "Look, if you really want to diagnose the culture of a company, mm-hmm. instead of asking people what the culture is like, mm-hmm. you should ask them to tell stories about something that happened at that organization, but wouldn't happen elsewhere." Mm-hmm. And so I've been advising my students to do this for years to say, "Look, you know, if you're going to interview a company, ask everyone you meet there what's a story about something that happened here that wouldn't anywhere else." Right. And then when they analyzed the stories, they found that the same stories were told over and over again to to illustrate cultures at different companies. At different companies. The same exact stories? Same kinds of stories. So they were stories about, is the big boss human? Can Mm -hmm. the little person get to the top? Am Mm -hmm. I going to get fired? Mm -hmm. And there were only sort of a few of those kinds of narratives that came up over and over again. And so, you know, I look at that and I say, look, every culture is about questions of, is it safe to work here? Is it just and fair? Do I have a, a sense of control? And I think most Silicon Valley companies are saying yes, yes, and yes. Mm-hmm. And then they have these surface ways of claiming that the culture is unique, but right. beneath, you know, however that looks, they're they're speaking to the same fundamental values. Right. So you're essentially saying no company is different, or I, no company should be organized differently. I think that I think that companies, the leaders I work with, believe their companies' cultures are more unique than they really are, mm-hmm. and I think that closes the door to learning because right. they basically think, look, nobody else is like us, therefore we can't learn from you know mm-hmm. their practices or their evidence. Right, right. So let's talk about some of those practices. Let's talk about what occurs now and then what has to change because I think the workplace. I've done a lot of shows on the changing workplace, whether it's from an HR perspective or a diversity perspective. Talk about the modern workplace as it is right now. So I think the, the theme I hear most in Silicon Valley is mm-hmm. we've got to celebrate failure. Mm-hmm. We yeah, want to build a fail-fast culture. Yeah. And I think that's a joke. I do too. Why? Because it's not true. Mostly because it's a lie. You don't failing. What you do is you don't get um, responsibility, I think. That's what it is for failure. I think that's a huge risk. I also right. think nobody wants to celebrate failure. Yeah. Failure, failure is horrible. Right. Oh, I broke up. <laughs> like you know, what I, you this think is about, so exciting. exciting. Let's have a party. Yeah, yeah. Once I, again, my personal relationship failed. I don't. People don't do it in other things. No, you know? I, I, I don't think it's realistic to expect right. anyone to do that. Right. I think though that we can probably get better at normalizing failure mm-hmm. and say, look, you know, it's a it's a natural part of of trying hard things and right. of running experiments. Right. And so you know, let's not freak out. Let's not have you know a witch hunt every time something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think where I see most tech companies get this wrong mm-hmm. is they do accountability around outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they measure the results of, of your product or, yeah, exactly, OKRs mm-hmm. are, are pretty common. Um, and they want to know, did you succeed or fail? And what I'd like to see is a shift toward process accountability and okay, say, explain. you know, let's, let's look at the decision process that you use to, you know, to bet on this idea. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see good processes with bad outcomes rewarded because those are smart experiments. Mm-hmm. 
and bad processes with good outcomes, those should actually be punished, mm-hmm. right? Because that's just luck. Right. And I don't think we do enough digging, you know, around, okay, if you didn't hit your OKRs, why not? Mm-hmm. And if you had a, you know, pretty good plan and mm-hmm. it just didn't work out, I'm much more comfortable with that than a bad plan that did work out. All right. Explain, give me an example of that. Like. So I think, a, you know, a common example that I've seen over and over again is you've got, uh, you've got let's say, an engineering team mm-hmm. who has an idea for a new product. Mm-hmm. And they, they bet on the new product, and it's a smashing success, and then they all get promoted. Right. And you find out they didn't really do their homework. They just had an idea, and they ran with it. And right. They got lucky. Right. And I think we should be less willing to reward that. Mm-hmm. I think on the flip side, I've seen lots of engineering teams come up with new product ideas that flop. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they did a careful analysis. They, you know, they said, look, here's, here's the likelihood here's of success. And they knew why it failed, and it was a good learning opportunity for the company. And I think too often that, that gets dismissed or punished. Right. And it, because this idea that failure—but then punished, be, though failure is rewarded, Correct. Well, I think I think what happens in the examples that are <laughs> that are most salient for mm-hmm. me is those people are are seen as you know not not going places in the long term. Right, right, right. right. So yeah, maybe they they helped us rule something out, but you know if they were really stars, they would have figured out how to make this project work. If they only had enough smarts. Yes. Yes, I think that's the thing I get. I mean, I think the fa- the fail fast culture. I'm not sure where it comes. I'm trying to like locate its origins. Um, I guess Steve Jobs sort of has done a lot of uh, damage in that regard. Like he failed and. And then he came back. And I find it's really interesting when I talk, when people talk about that, I'm like, "Mm, there wasn't another Steve Jobs. There wasn't a second or a third. Like, he was remarkable by himself. And so people tend to try to pattern map him in, in weird ways, I think. Yeah, I do think he's he's a little bit of a Rorschach test. Right. And the place that drives me craziest is when people say, you know, you, you have to be ruthless because Steve Jobs was ruthless. Mm-hmm. And I always want to know, you know, are you sure you succeeded because of those qualities and not in right. spite of those qualities? Right, right. And, you know, why did the Steve Jobs who came back to Apple consistently get described as a little bit kinder, mm-hmm. a little bit more patient, mm-hmm. a little bit more thoughtful toward other people? Mm-hmm. Maybe he evolved a bit. Yeah, yeah, probably. So uh, I want to talk also a little bit about what—so um, when you—with the modern world, so fail fast, what else is a problem there? What else is a problem? Um, I think—you <laughs> know, I have, a, I have a long list of complaints, but one of my other big issues is companies that are all about culture fit. Mm-hmm. So most of the tech companies I work with say, you know, when we hire, when we promote, we like skills, we're into star potential, but what what matters most at the end of the day is does this person fit the culture? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the data, there, there are a couple of studies that, that make this a pretty scary proposition. Mm-hmm. First one is a 15-year study of about 200 tech companies mm-hmm. where you look at the founders' blueprints, and it turns out that the founders who are, are passionate about culture fit their companies are less likely to fail, they're more likely to IPO. Mm-hmm. But then after that, they grow at slower rates. So once okay. they go public, they have slower growth in annual market cap, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, if you're founded on a disruptive idea, it's really easy then for culture fit to, to buy you people who are passionate about the mission, right. who could never want to work anywhere else, who are totally aligned on where they're going. Right. Mm-hmm. But as you grow, you end up basically attracting the same kinds of people. Because culture fit is a proxy for, are you similar to me? Right. Do I want to hang out with you? Right. And so you end up with this this really nice sort of homogeneous group of people right. who fall into groupthink, and then it's easier for them to get disrupted from the outside. Right, right. And they have trouble innovating and changing. I think that's a critical issue. I say this, I actually recently bothered some of the Facebook people about this. They kept talking about how cohesive they are, and I think <laughs> that's a problem. As far as I can tell, there's no you think so? Yeah, I do. I think cohesion is overstated in some ways, in difficult when there's difficult questions, because nobody questions. If you're you're so you get along so well, nobody says, "Wait a minute, like I don't I don't think this is a good idea." That kind of at at, at times of 
problems. So I'm not convinced. All right, let's tell me why. So this was this goes back to the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irving Janis was this social psychologist who coined the term groupthink. Mm-hmm. And his big theory was that cohesive groups are the ones who, you know, always are seeking consensus. Mm-hmm. And they can't get, you know, they can't criticize each other. They can't have hard discussions. Mm-hmm. And basically 40 years of research has shown that he's wrong. There's no correlation between okay. cohesion and groupthink. Okay. And what looks like uh, a cohesion effect is really driven by two things. One is overconfidence, mm-hmm. and the other is reputational concerns. Mm-hmm. So when you know when people are just sort of conforming to what the majority wants to hear, what the highest status person in the room wants to hear, it's not because they they really like each other. It's mm-hmm. because they're too confident in, the, in their own opinions, mm-hmm. often fueled by past success, and also because they're they're afraid of the political consequences of right. disagreeing with okay. a powerful. Okay, what person. would that be called then? Cohesion is not the word. Um, I mean, I think it. I think it's it's politics mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. That people uh, behave like that. Yeah, and so you know, if if, if I were trying to, to help a group avoid groupthink, I wouldn't say you know you, you should be less cohesive. Mm-hmm. I would say you need to do a better job embracing diversity of thought, mm-hmm. and let's figure out then how to both find people and create norms that allow dissenting opinions to be heard. Let's talk about these books. The originals was a, a huge big deal when it came out. Talk a, talk a little bit about sort of the fallout from that. I don't mean that in a negative way. You know what I mean? Like what, <laughs> yeah, it, let's it, talk about all the damage yeah, it caused, No, right? no, no. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was it was making a pr- explain the premise and then talk about where it is from there. So, I, I got interested in why so many people fall into the same trap that mm-hmm. I did and, you know, in saying, look, I, I don't have what it takes to be mm-hmm. an entrepreneur or right. to be creative. Right. And so, you know, then we just don't pursue our original ideas. Mm-hmm. And I found that it's most of the time, we, we think it's a lack of creativity right. that, that holds people back from mm-hmm. doing things that yeah. are you know disruptive or that go against the status quo. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem to be the case. We have tons of creative people. We have we all have creative ideas. Right. What happens is we, we misjudge them. So mm-hmm. we're bad at deciding which ideas are good and which ones are bad. And then we don't know how to champion them effectively. So, you know, our ideas fall on deaf ears mm-hmm. when we do give them a shot. Mm-hmm. And so I really wrote Originals as a, a sequel to Creativity to ask, after you have an idea... How do you judge it? How do you speak up for it? How do you build a coalition around it mm-hmm. and choose the right time to act? And, you know, the, I guess the most interesting thing for me has been that I've, I thought it was mostly fear going in mm-hmm. that, you know, when, when people didn't pursue their ideas, it right. was because they were terrified. Right. And it turns out Maybe empirically, you were, or, I mean, I was, yeah, yeah. but th- I think that's a factor, but empirically futility matters much more. Futility. Yeah, people just thinking, you know what, it, nothing bad is going to happen if I pursue this, but no one's really going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's not going to make a dent, and so why should I bother? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what? how do you solve that? Like, how has that changed? I don't know. I just study this stuff. Yeah, right? okay. <laughs> um, so how has that changed since you, you made those observations in the originals? I think one place I've seen it change is I've just, I've heard from a lot of readers and, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of the companies that I've worked with that they were consistently overlooking people who didn't speak loudly for their ideas, Mm -hmm. right? So we often listen to the person who's the most confident instead of the person who's the most competent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what that means concretely is we have more, probably more companies, you know, when when this goes right, we have more companies doing brainwriting, where instead of having a face-to-face brainstorming meeting, we have everybody generate ideas independently Mm -hmm. and then submit them for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. And very often you find that the person who is least likely to speak up in the meeting actually had the best idea. I see. And I think that's encouraging. Mm -hmm. So people doing that. And what has changed in the way you teach this idea of how people, because every company is looking for creativity and great ideas, essentially. Yeah, I think I've I've definitely found myself focusing more on the the concrete practices that leaders can adopt to, mm-hmm. to stop squashing original ideas. Right. And the sentence that drives me craziest these days is when, when a leader says, don't bring me blank, bring me blank. 
Okay. So I often when I'm standing with a, an audience, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say, just shout out, you know, fill in the blanks out loud if you've ever had a boss say yeah. this. And the whole room goes, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I hate because right. I do get why leaders say this, mm-hmm. right? They, they want people to be constructive. They don't want them to whine and complain. Mm-hmm. But I think if, if you create a culture where people can only speak up when they have a solution, you will mm-hmm. never hear about the biggest problems, mm-hmm. which are too hard for one person to solve. I see. So they won't tell you all their, their exactly. various things. So I, I actually love to work with leaders who are interested in creating a culture where you can voice a problem even if you have no idea what to do about it. Right. And Warby Parker has a fun solution on this. Okay. Tell- so they created a Google Doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it, uh, I think, Warbles. And what they do is anybody who sees a problem... they have to do that. Yeah, clearly. You have to brand yeah, it, right? Yeah. But anybody who sees a problem in the company can submit the, you know, the issue to the Google Doc. Mm-hmm. But instead of just leaving it sitting there like in many suggestion boxes, mm-hmm. they have senior managers in the company review the Google Doc every week, mm-hmm. and then they vote on which problems are important for the company. And so if you see a tech problem you want to fix, you can actually make it your job to go and tackle it. Huh. You've got to get people to participate in it. Yeah, which, you know, which they did initially by creating some, you know, small fun awards to say, hey, look, you know, whoever points out the most important problem is going to get some recognition. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, over time, people actually saw that some of their best innovations came out of this, this Google Doc. And so they really got into it. That's interesting. I was just thinking about how you'd apply that to reporters. It wouldn't work. You know, they, <laughs> Why not? They don't participate. They don't. You ask and ask and ask. Reporters are the shyest people on the planet. Is it shyness or is it independence? No, they're shy. They're, they won't, when you ask for questions, uh, difficult, whenever we've done difficult things and you ask for questions, you don't get questions. That's so interesting. That shyness doesn't describe most of what the reporters I know. Well, it's not, what is it? They just don't, they're not interested. Like, I know, I don't know how else to put it. I remember being at the Washington Post many years ago and they they tried to bring in a consultant to fix the newsroom or, uh, and very few people wanted to participate. I think that they just were like, no, I'm not doing a trust ball or no. <laughs> Maybe it is independence or just surliness or something. It could be. Or just uh, not identifying with the collective and saying, look, my, my job here is to do my own reporting, right? That other stuff is somebody yeah, else's problem. Yeah, but it, then it created a stew of unhappiness. Like you could, you know what I mean? The workplace wasn't necessarily a happy place. I can only imagine. Yeah, you know what I mean? It was just disgruntlement was what everybody had in common. And they've changed. They've changed. Workplaces changed like that. Um, all right. So what else? What, what other things? So another thing that, that I see a lot of leaders doing that, that mostly backfires is they say, look, we know we need diversity of thought in this room. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want just everyone to agree with the majority opinion. So we're going to assign a devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, I mean, that's what I thought too, until mm-hmm. you read all this research by Charlotte Nemeth at Berkeley, mm-hmm. which shows that assigned devil's advocates rarely convince anyone of anything. And oh, more wow. often they leave people more convinced than the majority view. Oh, wow. Which is scary. So two things go wrong. So Robert De Niro doesn't work. For no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, the, the first thing is when you assign a devil's advocate, that person is just playing a role. Mm-hmm. So they don't argue forcefully enough. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, everyone knows they're just playing a role. And I so see. they don't take the person seriously enough. Mm-hmm. What the data suggests is that instead of assigning a devil's advocate, you want to unearth the devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. So find a genuine dissenter and invite that person to, you know, to voice their views. And how do you do that? Um, usually it's, it's announcing, okay, here's the, you know, the topic before the meeting. Uh, I want to make sure we surface a range of viewpoints on this. So, you know, everybody can you submit or let me know what your perspective is. Mm-hmm. And very frequently you have to go to people one-on-one and find out what they think. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I guess the, the version of this that I've seen Cheryl do beautifully at mm-hmm. Facebook is she'll start a meeting by saying, here's the topic. I want to go around the room and hear everyone's opinion. Mm-hmm. And she does that before she voices her view. Mm-hmm. And that way people can't be biased in favor of, you know, what, what she's favoring. 
affected by everybody else, correct? Yeah, I think that's, that's very possible. And that's why ideally you give people a heads up on what the important decision is. And then mm-hmm. people have a chance to prepare their, their thoughts in advance. I see. And then you could identify the person who disagrees. Yeah. And then the, the goal is to listen to them, even if you think they're wrong. All right. I was talking about your other book, Give and Take, Helping Others Drive Our Success. That should be the way it works. It is not often in workplaces. Sad but true. Mm -hmm. So I ended up finding that there are these three styles of interaction that exist in pretty much every industry and culture around the world. So Mm -hmm. I called them giving, taking, and matching. Mm -hmm. Uh, Givers are the people who, by default, are always asking, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. Takers are the opposite. It's all about what can you do for me? Mm -hmm. And most of us kind of hover in the middle in this matching mode of saying, look, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And I was interested in the success of those styles. Mm-hmm. And so I studied, I looked at data on engineers' productivity, salespeople's revenue, and found that the the majority of the worst performers were givers. Mm-hmm. They were constantly either, you know, just doing other people's jobs instead of their own mm-hmm. or getting, you know, burned by takers if mm-hmm. they didn't burn out. And that led me to wonder if the givers are the worst performers, who were the best? Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to discover it wasn't the takers or the matchers. It was actually the givers again. Mm -hmm. That the most productive engineers, as well as the least productive, the the highest revenue-producing salespeople, as well as the lowest, uh, Hmm. were were givers. Mm -hmm. And so give and take was really about what it takes to be productively generous, to help others and succeed. Right. So what is that? Uh, I think it probably boils down into three, three big questions. So the first question is, who do you help? And we see that that failed givers are constantly helping takers, mm-hmm. whereas successful givers set boundaries. And they say, look, you know, if somebody has a history or reputation of selfish behavior, I'm not going to be as generous with them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold them accountable for paying it back or paying it forward, or right. maybe I'm just not going to help them as much. Right. The second is when you help. So failed givers end up dropping everything whenever a request comes in. Mm-hmm. Successful givers set boundaries. And they said, look, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have time blocked out to get my own work done, and then I'm going to be responsive during other windows. Mm-hmm. And then the third is, who do you, or excuse me, how do you help? So we see failed givers helping in lots of different ways. They become jacks of all trades. They're nice people you can harass whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Successful givers are people who zoom in and say, look, I want to be a specialist. Mm-hmm. I'm going to help in these two ways that are aligned with my skills and my expertise and with organizational goals so that I'm giving in ways that make a real contribution. Mm-hmm. And the matchers are not successful. So what happens to matchers is they very often create this transactional flavor when they help, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's not like I really cared about you, Kara. I was Mm -hmm. just helping because I wanted something from you. Right, right, right. And so they don't get the, yeah, they don't get the reputational dividends. Mm -hmm. The other mistake they make is they only help the people they think can reciprocate. Mm -hmm. And so they miss out on this, you know, common Silicon Valley story of, Mm -hmm. oh, there's this young entrepreneur who had a request for me. You know, I ignored it because what could that person ever do for me? And now that person's a billionaire and Mm -hmm. I have no relationship with them. Right, right. So you, well, that's kind of a Jesus model, right? That you that you don't know where. You never know, right, where anyone is going to end up. And the the interesting thing about successful givers is they don't go around thinking about, okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna help because these people are going places. Mm-hmm. They help in in ways that they think can can benefit others a lot, but they they're careful to protect themselves against the cost, right? Right, and say, look, I'm I'm not gonna necessarily spend nine hours with every person who reaches out. Right. Uh, I'm gonna help in ways that that don't require self sacrifice. So how do you then set those boundaries? Because I do, I know a lot of managers, and they talk about that idea of uh, feeling pecked to death. Yeah. Just pecked to death, like constantly. Yeah, you know, it's, it's something I've struggled with. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, ever ever since I started sharing my ideas publicly, I've gotten yeah. more and more requests. Right. I'm terrible at saying no. Yeah. Right. Uh, you say you live in, in Philadelphia because no one holds a meeting with you. It was very—actually, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, my God, I'm moving to Philadelphia. 
You know, I think there's something to be said for living a little bit off the beaten path Mm -hmm. where people are less likely to try to claim your face-to-face time. And then, you know, I try to meet with people more when I travel. Right. But I've, I I used to say yes to every person who reached out to me. Right. And over time, what I've found is I need to have some heuristics for what kinds of requests I'll I'll say yes and no to. And I think the same thing works for managers. Mm -hmm. So it's for, for me, the first thing I do is I say, okay, family first, student second, colleagues third, everyone else fourth. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, if I have a choice... I'm willing to accept that my colleagues will see me as less generous than my students do because I didn't I didn't become a professor to help other professors. Right, right. <laughs> I, I wanted right. I wanted to do something that mattered for students. Right. And then the other thing I've done is I've tried to zero in on, you know, what are what are the ways that I actually add unique value. And for me, that's sharing knowledge about work and psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, I love when somebody reaches out and says, Have you ever seen a study on? Yeah. I'm like, wow, I didn't waste all that time reading a journal. Right, right. Uh, and then the other is I really enjoy making introductions mm-hmm. if if they're mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I feel like I, I end up interacting with people in lots of industries. You know, very often I know somebody in, in one field who mm-hmm. ought to know somebody in another. And I, right. I love connecting those dots. Right. And that creates meaning you're a giver in that way. I try to be, right? right? But it also makes it easier to say no because when somebody reaches out, you know, or, or I get a lot of pecking right, right. In, in ways that aren't related. What I'll yeah. say is, yeah, actually, those are not ways that I think I can be particularly helpful. But if I can ever, you know, share any ideas with you sure. or connect you to anyone, let me know. I'm sorry, let me know what a disagreeable giver is then? Oh, yeah. So I, I went into this assuming that the personality trait that yeah. givers have is agreeableness, right? right? Agreeable people are warm and friendly and yeah. nice and polite. Right. And I, I gathered a bunch of data, and I found a, a zero correlation between agreeableness and giving. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out that agreeableness is your outer veneer. Mm-hmm. You know, how pleasant is it to interact with you? Are you right. interested in harmony? Right. Whereas giving and taking are your values or motives underneath. Right. So what are your real intentions? Mm-hmm. So you have to draw the two by two to really evaluate people accurately. And it's easy to spot the agreeable givers who say yes to everything. Right. The disagreeable takers, you also know those people. Other, yeah. you, you probably describe them in a more vulgar way. Asshole. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Those are the worst ones. But we overlook the other two combinations. Uh-huh. So they're agreeable takers. Those are the biggest fakers mm-hmm. who do a lot of kissing up and kicking down. Mm-hmm. And then I think the most undervalued people in just about any workforce are disagreeable givers. All right. And so That's I think fantastic. you're— Fantastic. Here we go. So the disagreeable givers are the people who are, are gruff and tough, but underneath they're doing it because they have others' best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. And so they're the people who give you the critical feedback that you don't want to hear, yeah. but you need to hear. Yeah. It was Isn't that you? Yes, it is. I was at a dinner party last night, and someone was there from Vice, and they just had a terrible article written about them. And, you know, you, did you read it? New York no. It sounds like a workplace you need to get into. Um, they have a new CEO now, a woman CEO, who's going to probably try to change things around. But um, And when I walked in, I saw this person, and I said, oh, God, that article sucked, man. Well, how are you feeling? Like, what? How? what's the fallout? And literally three people are like, Kara, we didn't mention it. We didn't want to mention it to this person because— you know, well, that's rude of you. I'm like, what? Did We all read it, right? Like, I don't know what to say. Like, why not? Obviously, it's on this person's mind. And they then talked about it. It was interesting. It was interesting. But two people definitely were like, you shouldn't ask about that. I'm like, what? Why not? It's like saying the cancer. You know what I mean? Like, not acknowledging what's happening. It that was is, interesting. That is one of the things that I think disagreeable givers do. Yes. Right? Sometimes it's misperceived as rude. But what you're doing is you're calling rude. out the elephant in the room. Right. Right. I, I was like, why would it—I I don't know. It was an interesting disconnect between me and some people. And I was like, so what are you talking about? Like Trump some more? Or like whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I, before we get to, to where workplace is going, option B, what's been uh, the result of that, do you think? It was, it was a big hit, obviously, with Cheryl. 
about the death of Dave, who was a friend of mine, and I don't know if you knew him. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Dave, Dave actually was the one who introduced me to Cheryl. Oh and wow, he was. I've I've never met a bigger giver. Yeah, he was he, absolutely, my, and he was not one of my role models. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Highly agreeable giver. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when we sat down to write option B, we thought that it was going to be about really helping people build their own resilience. Mm-hmm. And overwhelmingly, the questions we've gotten, the feedback we've received is about this book, you know, it it either helped me be a better friend or it gave me new ideas for, you know, for supporting a family member who was struggling or, you know, it it got me thinking about how I could show up for my team more Mm -hmm. when when they were going through hardship. Right. And I think what it it said to me is, you know, we we have a huge self-help section in bookstores. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to me that we don't have a help others section. Right. And so I guess I would I would put option B in the help others section. Mm-hmm. That I guess what I learned is there there are lots of people who want to be helpful and they just don't, don't know, know how. how. Yeah, right? that was or, a big theme in that book is people saying nothing around something that was uh, terrible. You know, yeah. it was in, and nobody would acknowledge it. Which is which is surprisingly common. Yeah. And you know, the I guess the other thing that that's it, it's gotten me thinking about is it connected back to something that I was I was first I guess a, alert to when I was writing Give and Take, mm-hmm. which is if you want to build a culture of generosity where mm-hmm. where people do help each other, the biggest driver of that, as far as I can tell, is actually the willingness to seek help. Mm-hmm. That you know, a lot of people just don't ask. They don't they don't want to you know be, they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to be a burden to others. They don't know where to turn. And so if you don't ask, you you end up with a lot of frustrated givers who would right. be happy to help if if only they knew, you know, what what someone needed or who mm-hmm. was who was in need. And so I think you you mentioned earlier, uh, I was asked to co-found this company called Give and Take, mm-hmm. where we're trying to make it easier for people to both give and receive help in, in five minutes a day or less. Mm-hmm. So we've been running this exercise for about a dozen years where you bring a group of people together. And you just have them all make a request for something they want or need, but can't get on their own. Mm-hmm. And then you challenge everybody else in the room to fulfill the request. Oh, wow. So uh, what do people ask for? It's, it's pretty weird. So um, Wayne Baker and Cheryl Baker first invented it. Um, and one of their early rings, they had a, they basically had a, a guy say, I want to see a Bengal tiger in the wild. Mm-hmm. They're like, that's what you asked for? Really? Oh. He's like, you don't understand. I was a tiger for Halloween every year as a child. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you know, I really want to make that happen. No one in the room has ever set foot in a continent where that's possible. Right. But somebody in the room has a connection, makes an introduction, and the guy's able to fly out for a private tour of a game preserve. Now, unfortunately, the tigers got loose. No, I'm just no yeah, he's dead. Uh, Very but, funny. You know, I think uh, I've I've run it in my classroom for years, yeah. and the question we always get back is: Is there an app to facilitate this so we don't have to right. just do it live? And right. that's what we launched in the spring. It's called Give a Toss where you can log in, you can submit a request, you can offer to help other people, and I'm hoping it'll be, it'll so be useful. So it's anybody, anybody. So it works best it's like when it's in— like millionaire for a day, but go ahead. Well, yeah. you could try it that way, yeah. but I, I think it works best when it's in sort of intact community. Right. So you take a group of people who maybe work for the same organization or they're part of the same industry, right. Right. and you create a, a closed group for them, and then they can make requests and offer oh. to help other people. Huh. And do they, but people might edit their requests, I'm guessing. It has to be within the context of the workplace or it just could be anything. We've actually found that if you do a personal request round first, the professional requests are much more meaningful. I see. Uh, people open up more. They you, you end up with a lot of surprise and gratitude. People are like, right. I can't believe somebody offered to help me. And right. it was safe to ask this group. I see. And then, you know, they make much more real requests to the group when it comes time to ask for a work solution or insight. 
Oh, wow. That's an interesting concept. I, I once played a game at, on a Hollywood set, but it was not meant to be nice. It was. I thought the assistants were too assisting, and the, and the people abused their power of, you know, Ooh. you know what I mean? Like, those, yeah. those assistants just get the shit beat out of them in Hollywood. And so I was on the set of a show, and they were like, I was a friend of the director, and they said, um, what would you like for lunch? And I said, a shark sandwich, please. <laughs> and they were like, what? And I said, I'd like a shark sandwich. And they're like, on. I go, um, focaccio, obviously, with aioli. Like, hello. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they were like, oh, okay. And they literally started to go get a shark sandwich. No. Like, yes. And I was like, what? I, I stopped them. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I want a tuna fish sandwich. Thank you very much. You cannot get shark sandwiches for people. Don't let anybody ask you for a shark sandwich. And I was trying to show these kids, like, yeah. and But, they, of course, they had to if someone had asked for a shark Anyway, so I called That's my awful. shark sandwich moment. It was really interesting. It sort of was like a workplace I don't want to be part of. Someone agreed to do something so ridiculous. <laughs> Clearly. Um, so I want to finish talking a little bit about where we're going in the workplace because I think most people, even though we're at low employment, um, feel very not disgruntled, disturbed. There's something disturbing happening in the workplace and where work is going to go. And you have all these ideas that maybe some, with, that AI is going to replace us, you know, all these vague worries about automation. They're not vague. They're actually real robotics. And I think people can feel it. And I think some of the, some of the, the political unrest is about that, about the workplace and how it's conducted. Talk a little bit about where the workplace is going. And in Silicon Valley does try to pioneer workplaces, but it's mostly through having Quonset Hut offices or, you know, something weird. Yeah. But where, where do you imagine the most interesting workplace setups are happening? So I, I actually tried to explore this when I started my podcast with Ted mm-hmm. this spring. Right. Uh, so the, the concept it's called, is called work life. Right, exactly. And the, the concept was to find organizations that have mastered something that we all wish we were really good at. Mm-hmm. And then go and learn from the extreme the same way that, you know, you might pick up a workout tip from an Olympic athlete, mm-hmm. even though you might right. not be an, an Olympian. So um, there, there are a couple of places that, that really changed my thinking about the future mm-hmm. of work. Uh, one is a tomato paste plant called Morningstar. Okay. So they've been uh, they bring in I don't know a few hundred excuse me a few hundred million dollars of revenue. They've been profitable for decades. They've never had a single boss mm-hmm. ever. And it sounds like holacracy. No bosses. No yeah. bosses. They started oh, with zero bosses. I don't want to get into holacracy. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a complicated issue, but I think Morningstar has, has figured out something that I think every organization could do, mm-hmm. which is they let you design your own job. And they say, look, you know, the, if the job description that you come in with was not written for you, then it's not going to capture your interests, your strengths, your values. So what if, what if we let you create your own, you know, you can be an architect of your work, essentially. And the question is, great, you know, how do you, how do you make that work? Because mm-hmm. we have an organization to run and we have a mission right. to achieve. Right. And the way that they've solved that, and this is so actionable, is they have every single person every year write what they call a clue, which stands for a colleague letter of understanding. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is a description of how you're going to add value to the mission this year. And you write that out, and then you have to take it to the five to ten people that you work most closely with mm-hmm. and get their buy-in. And then they have to do the same thing. And so everyone goes to their colleagues and basically says, look, this is what I want my job to be. Here's how I think it advances the mission. Mm-hmm. And then if they can get you know, a bunch of people to, to say that's a good idea, then they get to redesign their own job. So who designs the mission? So the mission was set by the, the owner okay. who founded the company. So we want to can this many tomatoes or whatever. I, yeah, I think. And part of the mission, though, is to do that in a way that preserves self-management and gives people autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that's sort of baked into the philosophy of the organization. But then what if everyone wants to do one thing that, and other people don't want to do the other thing that needs being 
done? So it turns out that there are a whole bunch of people who believe so passionately in the mission of the company that they're willing to do whatever it needs, mm-hmm. <laughs> needs to be done in order to, you know, to make the company successful. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with, you know, just tremendous loyalty. And, you know, they're, they're multi-generational families now where, you know, like somebody has worked at Morningstar for 30 years and then their kids start working there. And I think, you know, again, like most unusual organizations, I wouldn't recommend replicating all their practices. Mm -hmm. But I think just the idea of saying, look, I'm going to tinker with my job Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to try to get other people, you know, who I work with to to agree that that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see that. I think it's interesting. A lot of people, I think, like direction. They're used to hierarchical direction. I think that's right, but I don't think that they necessarily want it in every part of their job, right? I think we all have ideas for tasks we'd like to add or drop or people we'd like to avoid or interact with more. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see more discretion around those those kinds of choices. All right, what's another interesting thing you see for the future? So another thing that, that I find really interesting is a couple of the organizations that I went into um, are having people create user manuals mm-hmm. for themselves or their colleagues. And you know, it, never, it never dawned on me until I saw this happen that when you get a piece of new technology, there's a manual for how to work it. Right. But when you get a new boss or a new team, you get no information about right. how they operate. Mm-hmm. And so um, Bain, Bain had a really good model for doing this, the consulting firm. They, uh, they said, look, you could write a user manual for how to work with you. But you have all these blind spots. You might not know mm-hmm. right, how to right. work with you. So they have your they have your team actually write that for you. And so, you know, if I'm a manager there, I have nine direct reports. Those nine people work together and say, look, here's how to, you know, here's how to work with me. Here's what brings out the best in me and the worst in me. Here are my blind spots. And then I read that and I get to give my own input. And then we give that out to all the new hires that I have. For all of for everybody. They encourage people to do it. It's not required. Wow. But I loved it. I actually, I just tried it. Right. And uh, I, got, I got my first draft this morning from uh, somebody I've worked with for now about a year and a half. And she pointed out a bunch of things that I did not know about myself. And I'm like, really? okay, I need to do this more often. Wow. Oh, I don't want to read that. I don't wanna... <laughs> really? Uh, uh, I already know. I already know what they'd say. That's what I thought too. Oh, I think I do. I you think do. you know everything? I'm pretty self-aware compared, Yeah. I, not everything, not everything, but but and then but what happens when some of it is just not true? It's the perception. It doesn't matter, right? If the perception is what the perception is, yeah, reality. then I need to do something to change about the, the perception. perception. Okay, all right. Uh, give me one more, and then I want to talk about wh- like the problems of the workplace going forward because I think there's it's a myriad of of them right now. Yep. So one more. Uh, I, I have to say, I know there's a lot of debate about Bridgewater. Mm-hmm. Right. Ray Dalio's head. Yes, fun. I had Ray on. I, I have learned a ton from their culture. And one of the things that I've taken away is they say, look, it goes back to the groupthink point. They say, you know, you, as a financial institution, you can't beat the market unless you think differently from everyone else. Right. And the only way to think differently is to find out what everyone really thinks and, mm-hmm. you know, create the psychological safety for everyone to voice their views, even mm-hmm. if it's contrarian. And the way, one of the ways they've made that real is their performance reviews include criticizing your boss. Mm-hmm. And that's something you're expected to do. So you could be fired for not disagreeing enough with the people above you. Right. Imagine if every Silicon Valley company evaluated people positively on whether they were challenging upward. Yeah, which is a real problem. That's Huge what I was problem. talking about. I think in that way is that I, I was with, it might have been Mark, someone, one of like Mark, and they had done something. And I, when I walked in for lunch, I said, oh, that was a mess. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, did nobody tell you that you're an idiot? Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. And it was really, it was something so obvious. I was sort of surprised. And they weren't being, they're not difficult. This isn't a difficult person who doesn't hear things. It was that nobody in the organization chose to 
tell them something that was a problem. And it was really, I was sort of, I was just fascinated by it, you know, immediately. It's scary it was, that that happened. It was, and it was like, this person's even open to it, and they didn't tell, they didn't tell, like, I don't know. It's just an interesting moment. So when we think about the next version of the workplace, um, when people are under, have to deal with AI and automation and things like that, what do you imagine the workplace of the future will look like? I don't know. I think it's it's really hard to be a good forecaster. Yeah, right? right. The, try the, the clearer your vision is, probably the more wrong you are. Mm-hmm. I think the, the research I've read so far says that uh, the the care and service sectors are growing, mm-hmm. and they're probably going to be harder to automate in a lot of yes, cases. Absolutely, and so that means we'll see a, probably a premium on interpersonal skills, on emotional skills. I think also, you know, it's really hard to automate creativity. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear to me that a computer could paint the Mona Lisa. Right. But even if it could, would I want to buy it? Right, right, <laughs> Do right. I care anymore if right. it wasn't created by a person? Right. Probably not. So, you know, maybe maybe people have more freedom to do creative work as, as routine jobs get automated. Mm-hmm. And then I think also communication skills and critical thinking skills are, are probably getting more important. Mm-hmm. Because it's, you know, it's one thing to say, look, we can, we can build increasingly smart machines that can solve dedicated problems. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to take that information and use it to solve an organization's problem. Right. right? Or to figure out how to make a, a whole group of people more than the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. And so I think the ability to, to synthesize, to, you know, to draw connections between different groups, um, I think those skills are going to get more important. What that does to how you know, workplaces are organized, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And how does the, the prevalence of the technology, not just technology itself, but social media, all kinds of things have on that workplace, or Me Too, and you know, we haven't talked about diversity and Me Too and everything else, but it sort of hit the workplace like an atom bomb, essentially. Yeah, where do you want to start? Uh, well, Me Too. Where does it go next? I think where it goes next is, I think we have to do something about the perceptions that people have uh, around, you know, our workplaces actually in need of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was stunned by some of the responses to the Google memo mm-hmm. and equally stunned by, you know, the, the feedback in the wake of Me Too that mm-hmm. there are many men who believe that, that workplaces discriminate more against white men yes, than they do with mm-hmm. women and minorities. That's just a fundamental problem. Yeah. And I think we need to we need to figure out how to raise awareness about the fact that you know there's still tremendous sexism, racism, mm-hmm. you know, bias that affects people. And I think the the big issue there is that most of the time when we try to raise awareness about biases, people get defensive. Yeah, and of it course. backfires. Yeah, and I don't think 100%. we know much about how to overcome that. Right. So, any suggestions? Because it well, feels like that now that that's happening. Like, well, uh, you know, I can't say anything. I heard this the other day, and I was like, oh, for goodness sake, you can say things. You yeah, just can't I can't grab someone's ass. I don't know how that. <laughs> no, it's not that, not that complicated, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things I've I've found in my own classroom is yeah you know, I, I started out trying to like I'd show students data on you know gender gaps in leadership, mm-hmm. and it would do no good when I actually tracked whether our students or female students were more likely to vie for leadership positions on campus. Mm-hmm. And then I added a little um, a little piece at the end where I said, "Look, I think this is unacceptable, and I don't ever want to see it happen again." Mm-hmm. And I saw more than a 50% increase then in the number of students who, who decided either to lean in mm-hmm. um, or, you know. You had to get that in. <laughs> clearly, no. I mean, they, there, there was a big spike in applications for leadership roles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like student president and mm-hmm. to run clubs on campus. And I had a, a control group of, of students who didn't hear me say that. So I was able mm-hmm. to tease apart, you know, that the statement mattered. Mm-hmm. 
And I think part of what's going on is that when we surface awareness about bias, mm-hmm. uh, we we lead people to feel that it's it's common, it's right. normal, and so it's right. not such a big deal. Right. And we actually have to we have to reject it. Mm-hmm. Right? We have to say this is not okay. This needs to change. Right. And I guess the other thing I've learned is when when we call out bias, a lot mm-hmm. of times people are like, "Hey, I'm not biased." In mm-hmm. fact, there's a there's a whole bias called the "I'm not biased" bias. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a problem, right? I think what what I found works much better is to to bring out a study and say, look, you know, hey, we have this evidence, right, which you've talked mm-hmm. about a million times, that uh, when men are successful, they're liked more. When women are successful, they're liked less. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? What do you think explains that? Yeah. And then you let the audience generate their own, mm-hmm. you know, their own explanations, and very quickly they will rule out, you know, all the implausible non-gender bias explanations, and mm-hmm. pretty soon. They've convinced themselves instead of me having to convince them. I see. Interesting. I think that helps sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are you working on next? What's your next thing? So that is a good question. I'm not sure yet. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to start thinking about the next season of Work Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about you. I, I think podcasting is so much fun. Oh, yeah, like, totally. I've never done anything where I get to learn and share in real time that way. It's better. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly right. I was talking to someone. We were talking about where news is going. And I'm like, in a podcast, you can have the entire news thing in a much more satisfying way for users and the report. It's like being in a reported, whether I'm talking to Bill Gurley or I'm talking to Cheryl, you know what I mean? Like it has a different thing because even if you don't get all the answers, you certainly get all the questions. You know, yeah. you know, it's and a it really just, interesting. It feels, it's alive. Yeah. It has so much more context yeah. Than, yeah. than writing does. Absolutely. So I've, I've had a blast with that and I'm, I'm just looking forward to going into some new workplaces. All right, cool. All right, thank you so much, Adam. It was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank if you. If you enjoyed uh, the interview as much as this and disagreeable, what is it? Disagreeable, disagreeable giver. giver. All right. I'd like to be a disagreeable (laughs) taker, but oh well. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcasts, Too Embarrassed to Ask and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.